A few weeks ago, some of you may know that there was a little bit of an altercation here. And afterwards, Mark came to talk to me about it and what had taken place. And I told Mark that there was two separate issues at stake that needed to be addressed. One was the issue of authority and another was an issue of truth. And that darkness can never be defeated by means of authority, but only by light. Now, darkness is never a threat or feared by those who have light. Christ has called us not to exercise authority, but to shine light in darkness. And using authority to combat the error of darkness, uh, one is pointless, and two, it only gives the darkness legitimacy by implying that it cannot be dispelled by the light of truth. Hence, we must resort to darkness. Error can only be eradicated by teaching truth. Christ did not come to exercise authority, but to enlighten minds by teaching truth. And anyway, the result of that discussion with Mark is that he asked me to preach on the controversy over the Godhead. So I decided this would be a good opportunity to do so, and I invited the uh, parties involved to be present. They have chosen not to. Now, nevertheless, uh, I think this is going to be instructive for many of us because this is a very poorly understood topic. Uh, there's a lot of deception, dare I say, on both sides of the aisle. Now, before we actually get into the topic, I never ever discuss this topic with anybody. I'm only doing it because I've been asked to. But Ellen G. White tells us that there are certain things upon which we must reason. And there are other things that we must not discuss. In regard to God, what he is and where he is, silence is eloquence. When you are tempted to speak of what God is, keep silence, because as soon as you begin to speak of this, you will disparage him. And it's not a one-off. My brother, when you are tempted to speak of God, where he is or what he is, remember that on this point, silence is eloquence. Take off your shoes from off your feet. For the ground on which you are placing your careless, unsanctified feet is holy ground. And never allow yourself to be drawn into discussion regarding the personality of God. On this subject, silence is eloquent. And there are more statements like this that I could read. Now, it's not my intention today to enter into controversy about the matter. But the problem is that there is so much confusion and deception being practiced when people talk about the debate about Godhead, that it would actually be irresponsible uh, for me not to say something that might scatter some of the darkness and clarify some of the issues. Now, if we are informed about the history and context behind the debate, then it allows us to make uh, informed decisions. And we must all be in a position to be able to make an informed decision rather than be deceived. So my intention today is not to tell you what to think, but to, just to give you the background information so you can make your own informed decision. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the historical background, we're going to explain the differences in views, and we're going to discuss some principles. And we're going to look at what Ellen White specifically says about it, and we're going to look at what the Bible specifically says about it, without interpretation. I'm not going to interpret it. I'm going to make some comments about the verses. But you can interpret however you want. So it's not my intention, as I say, for you to come to a conclusion or how to interpret that. All right. So the question about the exact nature of God is one that no man can fully ever understand. 
because to do so would make man at least equal to, if not greater than God. Anyone who tells you that they understand the nature of God makes him or herself out to be equal with God. Why is that? Can a worm understand a man? Job 25, 6. How much less man that is a worm and the son of man that is a worm? Now, the last time you found a worm in your garden, did you gaze upon its unattractive form, its confinement to the dirt, its unappetizing diet of decaying vegetable matter? At the same time, did you stop to look at what it was thinking when it looked back at you? Was it drawn to your attractive appearance? Or captivated by your dress? Or perhaps impressed by the look of intelligence on your face? Or fascinated by your meticulous grooming? Unfortunately, earthworms don't have eyes. They only have light receptors. So all they can tell is they are in the light or in the darkness. Which means that that all they can tell about you is whether you are blocking the light or not blocking the light. And actually, we are not that much different from a worm. We can tell the difference between light and darkness some of the time. And we can tell when somebody is blocking the light with their own crazy, twisted ideas. Because of course the light is the Word of God. We can know whether they're twisting the Word or not. Hopefully we can. The Bible says to study to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of Scripture. So, in the relative scale of things, a worm, all that a worm can perceive about us is about what we can perceive about God. If a worm can understand man, so then man, who is less than a worm, can understand the infinite, the eternal, the unsearchable God. The only way a worm can understand you is if it's equal to you, in intelligence and in perception. The only way man can understand the nature of God is if man is equal to God in perception, in intelligence, and knowledge, and in nature. In other words, man would be like God. Now, Job says, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty under perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell. What can you know? Now, Lucifer, of course, he wants vain, mortal, ignorant men to think that man can search out God. Lucifer wants you to sit under the tree of knowledge of good and evil and imbibe his fallacies and think that the ideas obtained thereby are good and pleasant and full of truth. And those who have thus been mesmerised and consumed with poison apple feel a sense of elation that they have obtained wisdom unto salvation and become his strongest agents to lure others into his deception. Rather than being like God, they have become fools. They've lost the ability to reason for themselves. When God's word says white, they say black and insist that everybody must do the same. Satan is very experienced at misrepresenting the words of inspiration, twisting them to say the exact opposite of what they teach. Have you inadvertently wandered by that tree of knowledge of good and evil? Have you eaten of that fruit? Now, to make it easier for ignorant man to search our God, or to think that he can, Lucifer, what he does is he drags God down to make it equal to you. Ah, now I can understand him, you see. So, to 
try to fit God into man's limited understanding. As a bonus, by dragging Christ down, it makes it easier for Lucifer to climb up into the place of Christ. Because Lucifer, of course, is the son of the morning. You know, the, the first of the covering cherubs, the highest of all creating beings, who was next in honour to Christ. And what he did is that he claimed that Christ was his equal. And that Christ had no right to be honoured above himself. Lucifer knew that Christ pre-existed him, because Christ created him. But thinking that he could search out God, he imagined that Christ was like himself, also having a beginning. In fact, if you go back to the ancient cuneiform inscriptions that they found in Babylon from 2000 BC, what they say is that there is God, and then there are two brothers. And one is Christ, and one is Lucifer. And the two brothers swallow. You see, that's what Lucifer wants. He wants you to think that Christ is like himself, having a beginning. All right. How could the angels that he just did tell if Lucifer was right? Because they weren't around. They could just believe what Lucifer said. Well, he's our highest angel, so he must know because he was around before us. So he was able to deceive the angels. And Lucifer has ever since repeated this deception that Christ is his equal. And this deception is the basis of all pagan religions and is clearly so portrayed in what's known as the story of Atrahasis found in Samaritan Form tablets that I've mentioned. Now, Satan rejoiced in denigrating Christ, who in order to save fallen man, voluntarily took upon himself the limitations of human nature forever. Having thus ascended to heaven after his death, Christ now sent forth the comforter, the spirit of truth in his place, to abide with men. The only means by which man could resist Satan's temptations. Now Satan now seeks to confuse men, not just regarding the nature of Christ, and try to make Christ his equal, but also regarding the nature of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to understand the earliest definition for the word holy, what holy means, it comes from the word whole. And whole means intact, complete. It is something that must be preserved, intact or complete, and that cannot be transgressed or violated, cannot be pulled apart. Satan denigrates the Holy Spirit so that it cannot be served as a whole, complete person. Because he does not want the Holy Spirit as a distinct and independent entity. He's okay for it to be a spirit, but it can never, ever, ever be the Holy Spirit. Because it is not intact, it is not independent, it is not separate. Minister of Healing says the highest intellect may tax itself until it is wearied out in conjectures regarding the nature of God, but the effort will be fruitless. The problem has not been given to us to solve. No human mind can comprehend God. None are to indulge in speculation regarding his nature. Here, again, silence is eloquence. The omniscient one is above discussion. Now, what may have originally begun after Christ's ascension in the church as unprofitable discussions about foolish questions regarding the mystery of God that Scripture commands us to avoid quickly turned into open disputes. And Lucifer, of course, was pleased, but this gave him not only an occasion to further disparage Christ, but to spoil Christ's church and to convert it through the mystery of iniquity into Satan's masterpiece, the mystery of Babylon. Now, Popery is founded on three great principles. The first great principle of Popery is that the traditions and opinions of church fathers, or we might call them pioneers, 
uh, are the basis for determining what is truth. That's the first great error of papacy. The second great error of papacy is that the individual has no right to promote or hold contrary views. And finally, the final one is that the church has the right to persecute heretics. And a heretic specifically is somebody that rejects church dogma. The great error of the Roman Church is found in the fact that the Bible is interpreted in light of the opinions of the fathers. These opinions are regarded as infallible, and the dignitaries of the Church assume that it is their prerogative to make others believe as they do. Those who do not agree with them are pronounced heretics. But the Word of God is not thus to be interpreted. It is to stand on its own eternal merits, to be read as the Word of God, which declares His will to the people. The will and voice of finite man here not to be interpreted as the voice of God. So, any appeal to the teachings or interpretation of men as an authority for determining truth is to lay the very first foundation of the papacy. Any disparaging of those who disagree with a particular interpretation of men is to lay the second foundation of the papacy. And the final third step is the natural conclusion. Now, amazingly, while simultaneously denouncing those who disagree with them as following the errors of Babylon, those that promote Lucifer's misrepresentation of Christ, claiming the opinions of some church fathers or pioneers, that they are the only correct view of the matter. And this hypocrisy is breathtaking, because they claim everybody to be following Babylon for disagreeing with them, but they are using the same principle of Babylon in condemning those who don't agree with them. As breathtaking, for example, as the occasion in Wycliffe's life, you know, the Protestant reformer, when there were two competing popes, each one accusing the other one of being the Antichrist. But it's more than just hypocrisy. See, piling up a mass of scriptures that is designed to confuse the mind and then immediately appealing to the traditions of church fathers as the authority by which to resolve this confusion and impose one's ideas on another is a classic technique of using what's known as psychosis. The minds that are thus hypnotised are unable then to reason for themselves. An Ellen White says in Testimony Volume 8, 239, in the future, Satan's superstitions will assume new forms, errors will be presented in pleasing and flattering manner, false theories created, clothed with garments of love will be presented to God's people, thus Satan will try to deceive if possible the very elect. Most seducing influences will be exerted, and minds will be hypnotised, the hypnotic influence of Satan will rest upon those who turn from the plain word of God to pleasing pagans. Now, the opinions of church fathers are in this way placed above the straightforward statements of inspiration. Yet, neither the fathers of the Adventist church nor those of the Catholic church could agree as to the nature of the Godhead. So, appealing to them is pointless, leaving us with the problem of which of them shall we choose as a guide? Oh, I get to pick the one I like. This difficulty, of course, is immediately resolved by falsely claiming that all of the important church fathers agree on the issue. But that's actually a complete lie, both in the case of the Catholic Church and in the case of the Adventist Church, as I'll show later. Now, upon this foundation, of course, the next layer of appropriate is laid down. They make their views about the Godhead into a dogma, a truth that must be held in order to be saved. That is where dogma is. A truth that must be believed in order to be saved. Now, dogmas have no place in Christ's church. Because by doing so, by creating a dogma, they put themselves in the place of God, thinking that they have the prerogative to determine what is the salvation issue and what is not. 
To such persons, all those that do not hold a position are essentially heretics. Since according to Canon 751 of Roman Catholic law says, quote, heresy is the obstinate denial or obstinate doubt of some dogma. Now, Ellen V. White says, Beware lest you read the word of God in the light of erroneous teaching. It was on this very ground that Jews made their fatal mistake. They declared that there must be no different interpretation placed upon the scriptures than that which had been given to the rabbis in former years. The word of God was made of none effect through their traditions. The rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees had perverted the meaning of scripture. In contrast to the papal spirit, the founding principles of the Reformation was that neither the church fathers nor the traditions of the church nor the decisions of church councils are of any help in determining what is truth, but sola scriptura under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The teaching of God's will and truth can only be determined from the ideas of certain men was cast aside by the Reformation. The priesthood of believers instead in its place, asserted that every man can read the scriptures for himself and with the direction of the Holy Spirit determine what is truth for himself. You don't need to go to a priest or any other human interpreter. To assert otherwise is to endorse the first principle of the papacy. And many a martyr have lost their lives for refusing to submit their understanding to the interpretations of men. Now, Paul tells us in John 16, 13, how that when he, the Spirit, is truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. And Psalm 119, says, I have more understanding than my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. It simply does not matter what others believe or have believed. Truth is not determined by majority vote any more than the Pope is Peter's successor. The private or collective interpretation of church leaders or pioneers is of zero value in determining what is truth. Only the word of God read with childlike innocence. Okay? Without trying to put an interpretation on it or spin it this way or that way. The kingdom of heaven is not a gathering for the purpose of receiving interpretations of men, but a gathering of all those who receive the truth of God's word as interpreted by the Holy Spirit and no other. Men have a role in preaching the word and rightly dividing it while shunning profane and vain babblings, but that is all. To rely on the opinions of others as a guide interpreting scriptures to put those men in the place of the Holy Spirit. And to do so is to break the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other God. Another quote. There is today the same disposition to substitute theories and traditions of men for the word of God as in the days of Christ, of Paul, or of Luther. The reason why so many are groping their way in the fog of error is that they take the assertions of men instead of searching the Word of God for themselves. And the Word of God plainly teaches that no man has the right to determine what another must believe in order to be saved, and that no man has the right to judge others in regard to the understanding of the Scriptures. Remember Paul says, do not judge. Some believed in eating certain meats, others did not. Some kept ceremonial Sabbaths, others did not. Those that believe some view about the divine nature of Christ, to God they believe it. And those that do not believe, to God they disbelieve it, as Paul says. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Romans 14.5 God will not judge you according to whether you have or do not have the same understanding of the scriptures as do others. But what you do with the understanding that you have. To assert otherwise is to endorse the second principle of popery. 
All right, so that was just the introduction. Okay, I want to make it very clear here that the Bible does not give anybody authority to tell anybody else what they must believe or what they mustn't believe to persecute those who believe differently or not. But now what I want to do is I want to talk about what this has to do with the question of the Godhead. And those who make their views of the matter of the Godhead into a dogma are following papal principles. That is, if you say to somebody, if you do not believe it, what I'm telling you, you will be lost. That is the Antichrist speaking. Now, then they convert their ideas about God into an idol before which all must bow, which is breaking the commandment about idolatry. They go about trying to convert others to their idol worship, as the Apostle Paul has warned us, where he said, Of your own selves shall men arrive, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. They have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. And my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because, see, they believe that ignorance is strength. If you're ignorant, I'm going to tell you whatever I want, and you're going to believe it. Well, I'm here to tell you the facts, so that then you don't get deceived. And you can make up your own minds about what is true and what is not. Now, before we get to that, it does not help that the Catholic dogma of the Trinity is very confusing. The reason it's confusing is because, first of all, it was concocted as a political compromise to achieve ecumenical movement. Am I saying all the right words? Politics, ecumenism? Not only was that the reason why it was created, but because it has evolved over the years, over the centuries, to be something completely different from what it was. So we're going to look at this. All right. Now, before then, Christians had a variety of views about it. In about 325 AD, 300 years after Christ, the half-converted pagans clung to the idea of the pagan pantheon, where there was Zeus, God the Father. And then there's all these little gods under him, you see. And they argued about how did Jesus come into existence? You see, he wasn't God the Father. He was a little god. How did he come into existence? And what it meant when the Bible says that Jesus is one with the Father. They kept arguing about that because they couldn't, couldn't figure it out. There was two main camps. One was uh, uh, led by a man called Athanasius. And he claimed that there were verses in the Bible, like the verse says, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. That meant that Jesus must have been the Father's offspring uh, of some way. Others, like a man called Arius, he believed that Christ had been created by the Father, just like the angels were created. Now, neither of these groups believed that Jesus had existed from eternity. They all believed, because they were half pagans, that Jesus at some point didn't exist. He this distinct individual from eternity and then came into existence. And that none of them believed that the term begotten was talking about Jesus as a man. They all said that talks about Jesus as God. Jesus was begotten as God. And all of these teachings, of course, support, support Lucifer's lie that Jesus is inferior to the Father, that Jesus came into existence after the Father, just like he did, you see, what equals. So the problem was saying that um, Jesus did not exist from eternity contradicts what the Bible says, that God changes not. Okay? If he came into existence at that point, he changed. Anyway... Um, to deal with this problem there was a, a group that compromised and they were called the semi-Aryans or half-Aryans and what they said is that um, they came up with this nonsense idea that Jesus has always existed but you know, just not separately he existed 
inside the father somewhere, in his bosom, wherever his bosom is. Was his belly? Was he pregnant? They couldn't explain this. Anyway, and at some point Jesus was brought forth. Well, that sounds like a change to me. See, when we had our first son, that was a big change to our life. Okay? And those of you who've had children know that's a big change. God changes not. Okay? Now, and so what they say is that at some point in time, before anything else was created, Jesus was brought forth. So, of course, this is a bit nonsensical because if no one else is around, okay, what was Jesus hiding from? And why did he need to emerge if no one's around? There's no other being in existence. So did the father suffer some kind of multiple personality disorder and somehow got too bad and it sort of split into two? This is the Semiarian view. Now, there was another group of Christians who had no part in the, the, the debate. And these were the Christians who had remained faithful and had not compromised with paganism. Remember, this is 325 AD. By this time, they were worshipping idols, they were worshipping saints, they were keeping Easter rather than Passover, they were keeping Sunday, right? By this time, they have already gone off in the la-la land. But there was a group of Christians who refused to do that. And they separate, they'd separated themselves, and they instead believed that Jesus had always existed from eternity, just like John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God from the very, very beginning. And all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. They did not believe that the word begotten means that there was a time when the divine Jesus did not exist as a separate individual. In fact, what they did is they allowed the scripture to explain itself. Let's look at it. Psalm 2.7 I will declare the decree, the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, this verse says that there was a day when Jesus was begotten, or said, declared to be begotten. Did days exist before creation? What did the Bible say? The evening and the morning was the first day. So if you believe what this Bible says, Jesus must have been begotten after creation. Well, we just read that before him, nothing was created. and He created everything. So straight away, this verse blows out any idea about Jesus beginning to exist sometime before creation. Secondly, what it says is that I will declare the decree. Now, a decree is a legal proclamation. It does not need to have any basis in fact. In fact, the governments around the world have now decreed that a biological man is a woman. Does that have any basis in fact? But that is a decree, and the governments have declared it. Jehovah, he says, I will declare the decree. This day have I begotten thee. That doesn't mean that he was born from the Father. That's a, a decree that, that doesn't have to have any real basic in literal fact. So, first of all, this isn't talking about before the world's created. And secondly, it doesn't mean that he was born from the Father. In fact, we know he was born. He was born from Mary. And on that day, he was begotten. Not literally from God. But he was begotten, and God the Father declared the decree. Anyway, so let's go on with our history lesson. So now, when the pagan Emperor Constantine became the, the Emperor of Rome, he wanted to unite the pagans and the Christians into one universal religion. And you know what the word Catholic means, it means universal. And he started his effort in 317 AD. And the first thing he did is he persecuted all of those Christians who refused to unite with the Catholic Church. Okay, the first thing he did. Now, about four years later, 
He then ordered everybody to keep Sunday in the universal Sunday law that we all should know. And then four years after that, he convened what's called as the Nicene Council. Now, he didn't just call the council, he presided over it. That's him in the middle. He was the one who made the decision. He just had all these people around to give him advice. And he's a pagan making a decision about Christian theology. So he chaired this council, and what the council did is tried to find a compromise between the arguing half-pagans about what begotten meant and when Jesus was begotten. Jesus, not the man, Jesus, the divine God, was begotten. And so he sat there and listened to them. It got to the point where you know, they couldn't agree on what begotten meant. What does it mean that he was begotten? So they only had three choices. The first choice is that the Father exists for eternity. At some point, Jesus begins to exist because he's being created. And then Jesus gets incarnated. But, but in this case, both the Father and the Son are completely different. They're made from different substances. If I make something, it's not a bit of me. It's something completely different if I make something out of wood or steel. So that's the first option that the Arians believe that. Then there was another option, and that is that Jesus was begotten. Now, um, the point with begotten is that Jesus, as divine, must have popped out from God somewhere. So if he popped out from God, he would have been the same substance. So, you know, just like how a cell splits. Have you seen a cell split? So, you know, the, the DNA separates into two little groups. And it sort of wobbles a little bit, and the cell starts to go a little bit longer, and then the two little bits of DNA go to each opposite ends, and then it pops apart. It's identical substances, but we now have two completely separate cells. And if you're a bacteria, it's a completely different life. It's a separate being, a separate entity. So that was one view, okay? The same one substance or the same substance. Of course, then there was the others that more pagan thinking, well, you know, there must have been some mother, and Jesus was somehow conceived. You know, and so I've got my little picture there of Jesus coming by stock because nobody could explain how it happened, who the mother was, but he somehow was conceived and he came. This is not the man Jesus, this is the God Jesus we're talking about. Of course, what they didn't discuss was the fact that God, the Father, and Jesus' Son existed together from eternity. That was not on the cards because remember, these are pagans. So the whole argument actually turned about what the substance was. I mean, they were talking about how he began, but really what substance he was made of, because that determines how he began, you see. If he's of the same substance, then he has to be begotten. If he's mixed substance, then he's got to be you know, half God the Father and half something else. You know, we're talking about the substance here. So anyway, so Constantine, after listening to all the argument, he decided he was going to make his decision. And so he, he came up with a compromise between the semi-Aryans and the Athanasians. And he declared, quote, that the Son of God was begotten of one substance with the Father. End quote. That is the dogma. Anybody who did not believe that was henceforth a heretic. Okay? And this is when they say the dogma of the Trinity was born, the Council of Nicaea. In fact, the word Trinity was invented for another thousand years. But it was used to identify those who were Catholics from those who were not. Mind you that the Catholic origin of the Trinity doctrine is semi-Aryan. Okay? It's semi-Aryan. That's where it starts from. So if a semi-Aryan tells you he's not a Trinitarian, he's lying. Okay? Straight away. Alright, now, the problem with that is that this created a can of worms. Because now all of a sudden, all these other questions, what did it actually mean to be begotten? That hadn't been answered. Was Jesus created before? Was he begotten before the earth was created? Or was he begotten before the angels were begotten? You know, when was he begotten? And how does that make the Father and the Son one? 
you see. There was still that argument. And Jesus said, whosoever see me and seen the Father, are they identical twins? Or are they a single being? You know, you just opened up a can of worms that went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. So what happened slowly is that it created this paradox of Jesus being both, with Jesus being begotten, both being inferior and equal to the Father. See, he's inferior to the Father, as you can see here, and the, the Father's above and Jesus is below. The Father came first. If you're first, you're always superior. Yet at the same time, they say, well, it's the same, it's equal, because it's the same substance. Well, you can't be equal and inferior at the same time now, can you? So that was the first problem. And the other problem, of course, is that um, the Bible says that the nature of God is a mystery because it has not been revealed, not because it's self-contradictory. A paradox is self-contradictory. If you claim that the nature of God is a mystery because it's self-contradictory, then you may as well believe that you know, white is black and that good is evil. But the paradox was convenient for what Constantine wanted to achieve, to unite all the pagans and the Christians together. It suited him and it's still convenient for the same reason today. Now, over the periods of hundreds of years, the evolution of the Trinity changed. Okay? So, the Nicene Creed, up to about 338, 381 AD, believed that Jesus was begotten the same stuff as the Father, and they had no idea about the Holy Spirit. They couldn't decide if he existed, if it didn't exist, if it was a person, if it was a spirit, didn't know. So, a few hundred years later, at the Council of Constantinople, um, they decided that Jesus was begotten, not in time, but before time, which is like saying that he really wasn't begotten at all. And that the Holy Spirit was actually begotten of the same substance. But of course, this left in the problem of, well, is Jesus one? Is God one being or many beings? So eventually they decided that God, Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit is just one single being. One person. Well, they talk about three persons in one, but really it's one person, three personalities in one, which means multiple personality disorder. Okay? One person doesn't know what it is. So essentially the concept of the Trinity is depicted like this. where a Jesus with three faces. Because the Father looks like Jesus. Or alternatively, you could say, well, it's like a projection. It's like one light that projects itself, and depending on where you look at it, looks differently, but it's just the one light. It's a single being. So this is the concept of the Trinity. And the word Trinity, um, as I said, didn't arise about 1,000 years after the Council of Trent. It allowed them to keep the infallible language of the Council of Nicaea. You see, infallible can't be wrong, so it can never change. Allowed them to keep the infallible language, but completely change the meaning from a Jesus that came into existence after God as a separate being, after God the Father, separate being, into a Jesus that is God the Father. But the language is the same. Alright, so now this new dogma of the Trinity allowed them to apparently elevate Jesus to be equal with the Father. But the problem is that it fails to do so. Because if Jesus and the Father are a single being, each member cannot have an individual will. That means Jesus cannot choose to do something different from what the Father would have him do. At which point, the whole charade of him coming to earth and struggling, you know, not my own will, was it just a joke? Because he had no will. He only had the will of the Father. He couldn't choose to do any other will. He couldn't choose to sin if he wanted to. The whole thing is a charade. So it doesn't lift him up. It just turns the whole thing into a joke. Jesus' personal sacrifice is a non-sacrifice at all. Anyway, so essentially, 
we can look at all the different views of, of the Godhead and we can list them all based on their view of the substance and the origin. So some people, Unitarians, they claim that there is only one being, a single being, and so it's a singular substance, no other substance in existence. Then you've got the Trinitarians. They say it's a shared substance, so one substance, one living substance is shared between all three beings. Just like my arm shares the same substance as my leg. It's the same DNA. But guess what, if I cut one off, it's not going to grow a new body, right? It can't exist separately from father. All right. <coughs> then we have a clone substance, like a cell splitting. So this is essentially the Nicene Creed. Jesus sort of split off somehow from the father. And the origin is derived from the parent begotten in some way. And, and that's, um, that's uh, the early Trinitarian view. And then we have the same substance. The same substance, but we don't know where it's come from, like cats of a single species. We don't know what the immediate parent is. Okay? But they are the same. The DNA is almost identical. Okay? Some minor changes, but it's almost identical. It's the same substance. And that's the view of the Worldwide Church of God, and that's actually the view that Ellen G. White seemed to have. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Also, there's the view of the Mormons and the Semi-Arians. That is that um, Christ came to existence at different times. We don't know where. Just like a lion and a tiger, the cats, right? But they're actually quite different animals. They're not related at all, except some basic physiology. Then you've got the Arians and Jehovah's Witnesses, who have a view that they have a related substance, just like a cat and a bird, sort of related because they're animals. They're actually very different. And then we have the unrelated uh, substance view, which is called adoptism or tritheism, where we have, you know, the difference between Jesus and the Father is like the difference between a cat and a plant. Nothing at all. You know, essentially, they say Jesus was a man who became God at some point. All right. So, now, let's talk about some history. Now, hopefully, you're all experts in different views on the Godhead. Um, so, what does the church believe? Now, there's a lot of confusion about the church view on the Godhead. And there's three basic camps. Since the 1960s, along with many other innovations in the church, there's been a push by leading men uh, within the church, men such as Leroy Froome, Russell Holt and Erwin R. Gain, to establish the Catholic dogma of the Trinity as a fundamental belief or dogma within Adventism. And that led to the adoption of the Trinitarianism in 1980 by the General Conference. On the other side of the aisle, you've got those Adventists who claim to be non-Trinitarians and say that only the semi-Arians like them can be saved. And they say that Christ's divinity was begotten, that Jesus did not exist as a distinct individual from eternity, and that Jesus is of one substance with the Father. Exact words from Constantine. And like the Nicene Council, they have no consensus regarding the origin and nature of the Holy Spirit. Some say he doesn't exist. It's like the Council of Nicaea. That's where they're at. Okay, they're stuck 325 AD. All right, now, it starts to get confusing because the um, Trinitarian and so-called non-Trinitarian camps all claim that all of the church pioneers, Seventh-day Adventist church pioneers, were semi-Aryan. The Trinitarian camp further claims that L.G. White was herself a Trinitarian, in spite of the fact that all the pioneers disagreed with them. But on the other side, the non-Trinitarians say that, no, no, L.G. White was like them, a semi-Aryan. And all these claims are false. Now, it's true that a sizable portion of the pioneers did hold some uh, assortment of different views. Some were semi-Aryans, some were full Aryans, some were Trinitarians. 
but they were never the established teaching of the church. And both camps rely on ignorance to tell you that the church was originally semi-Aryan. And when you confront the uh, semi-Aryans on LGY's clear statements, they'll tell you that somebody has tampered with her writings, you know, because they just don't want to deal with the facts. Now, the claim that um, the church was originally semi-Aryan is very easy to disprove. First of all, a 1872 pamphlet of 25 fundamental beliefs, which was published by the church not as a creed, but, quote, to meet inquiries and to correct false statements. It said that there is one God, a personal spiritual being that created all things, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, infinite in wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, truth and mercy, unchangeable and everywhere present by his representative of the Holy Spirit. Is Jesus there? No. There's no attempt to separate God the Father from God the Son. None. That's what the church believed in 1872. Now, after that, um, there was a Bible conference in 1919 in Tahoma Park, Washington, D.C., which is where the General Conference was situated, to discuss a number of issues of what was being taught in Adventist Bible colleges because everybody had different views. They wanted to sort of try to see if there was some consensus. And one of the topics was the deity of Christ. And the transcript of those meetings, which I have read, and they are available, makes it clear there was no consensus at the time about Christ's deity. The 36 delegates that were present uh, represented a very wide range of views from Arians to Trinitarians, um, and some were teaching that Jesus did not exist from eternity and had been forgotten, while others taught that Jesus was eternal. And some held compromised views that Jesus was both eternal and begotten, i.e. hidden away in the bosom of the Father somewhere and popped out, um, as is done today. Um, so just like today, the false attribution was made that those who believe that Jesus is eternal and the Holy Spirit is a person were Trinitarians. That's not true at all. A number of delegates admitted, partly in response to statements of the Spirit of Prophecy, that they had abandoned their views about Christ's deity not being eternal. Because Ellen G. White made that very clear. So they were moving away from semi-Arianism because of Ellen G. White. Now, during the deliberations, the General Conference President, A.G. Daniels, had to remind the delegates that they were not there to vote on a position of, you know, whether Trinitarian was true or Arianism was true. They weren't there to decide that. They just wanted to see well, if there was consensus. Of the 17 delegates, four held to the eternal deity of Christ, five were against the eternal deity of Christ, and eight didn't know. The only way this can be represented as being a consensus is to misrepresent the eight that were undecided as being in agreement with the five that said that Jesus was not eternal. It's the only way, and that's a basic, just flat-out lie. So the next question is, well, what did Ellen G. White herself believe? She was the most influential founder or pioneer of the Adventist Church. What did she believe? Uh, was she a Trinitarian? Was she semi-Aryan? Now, we can find her statements are very clear in the book Evangelism in a section called Misrepresentations of the Godhead on page 613 to 317, published first in 1946 by the Review and Herald from statements that she'd written 50 years earlier. So let's read them. The Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, existed from eternity, a distinct person, yet one with a Father. Does that sound like he was hidden inside the bosom somewhere and just one day popped out? No. All right. Christ is the pre-existent, self-existent Son of God. He's speaking of his pre-existence. That there never was a time when he was not in close fellowship with the eternal God. There never was a time. All right. 
He was equal with God, infinite and impotent. He is the eternal, self-existent God. Did he sort of like split off and derive his life from the parent cell? No. He didn't derive his life from a parent cell. He was self-existent. He didn't need God the Father. He didn't need the Holy Spirit to exist. He existed by himself. So she clearly wasn't semi-Aryan or Aryan. And she clearly wasn't Trinitarian. Um, now what about the Holy Spirit? Semi-Aryans insist that the Holy Spirit is not a person. Did Ellen G. White believe that? She says we need to realise the Holy Spirit who is as much a person as God is a person is walking through these grounds. The Holy Spirit is a person for he beareth witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And when this witness is born it carries with it its own evidence. At such times we believe and assure that we are children of God. He must also be a divine person. Else he could not search out the secrets which lie hidden in the mind of God. Now, another quote from her. The prince of the power of evil can only be held in check by the power of God in the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And the Father is all the fullness of Godhead bodily and is invisible to mortal sight. The Son is all the fullness of the Godhead manifested. The Word of God declares him to be the express image of his person. The comforter that Christ promised to send after he sent it to heaven is the Spirit in all the fullness of the Godhead. There are three living persons in the heavenly... Does she say Trinity? You know, she never used the word Trinity in her entire life. And she was very familiar with the word. The word Trinity has been around for, you know, since 1300 AD. She never used the word. Heavenly trio. Not a trinity. In the name of the three great powers, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of these people who don't believe in the Godhead, they say that, you know, they believe Ellen G. White. Well, if they did, there'd be no discussion about whether Jesus has always existed as this distinct divine being. Anyway, let's go on. Now, the ploy that is used is that you're either with us, i.e. a Cimmerian, or you're against us, i.e. a Trinitarian. But that's really just a mean of deception by controlling the narrative and stop the truth from coming out by hiding it behind two falsehoods. Any use of such popish means to promote a doctrine establishes popery. Apart from its many errors, popery was established on the lies of Peter's succession and the donation of Constantine. Peter was never the first pope, and the popes were not his successors. And those who promote the semi-Aryan view within the church are similarly promulgating a life succession. They claim that that's what the church used to teach, and we're just their successors. It's not true. Any appeal to the views of men past or present establishes popery. Any teaching affirms Roman Catholic dogma establishes popery. Any attempt to require others to have a certain interpretation of God's word in order to be saved establishes popery. Anything that establishes popery is the spirit of Antichrist. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.17, Wherefore, come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. But there, hugging it for all it's worth. The principles of popery. That some SDA pioneers refused to accept the authority of spirit prophecy on the question and chose to remain in the confusion of Babylon is no reason for us also to be confused and to join with them. So the question is, what does the Bible teach? Now we know very clearly now what Ellen G. White believe. Does the Bible support Ellen G. White's view? Does it support the Aaron view? Does it support the not the semi-Aaron view? What does it believe? Now, I don't have time to do a full study on this. Okay? I do have some handouts with all the texts and you can read them at your leisure. Um, I'm not going to read the text because it will take a lot longer than I'm already over time and 
Um, but we are just going to discuss a few points. The Bible says, Ye are my witnesses, says the Lord. And that word in the Hebrew is Jehovah. And my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand, I am He. And before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be any after me. I, even I am the Lord, beside me there is no Saviour. Says Jehovah, the only true God. Psalm 83, 18, that men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, his name alone is Jehovah, at the most high. Really? Who is Jehovah? John 5, 37 and 6, 46. Jesus twice said, no man has seen the Father. Genesis 18, a whole bunch of verses, says, and the Lord Jehovah appeared unto him Abraham, and the Lord said unto Abraham, Your father rejoiced to see my day, said Jesus, in John 8, 56. And he saw it and was glad, and then the Jews said unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and thou hast seen Abraham? And Abraham said to them, Very, very, I said to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then they took up stones to cast him. So if Abraham saw Jehovah, who is Jehovah? And why do they take up stones to cast at him? Because being a man, they said, you make yourself out to be God. There's more proof that Jesus is Jehovah. Exodus 37, 3, sorry, 7 to 10. And the Lord Jehovah said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. I will send thee unto Pharaoh that may bring them out. And then in Exodus 3, 13 and 40, it said, Most son of God, behold, when I come to the children of Israel, and say to them, The Lord God, your fathers, i.e. Jehovah, sent me, who shall I say that he is? What is his name? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me. I am. And did, what did Jesus say? Unless ye believe that I am, ye shall die in your sins. So if you believe that Jesus is not Jehovah, some other little God, you're going to die in your sins. Pretty clear. More. John 12, 40, 41, John speaking about Christ's uh, ministry says, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes and understand with their heart. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. This is talking about Jesus. Who did Isaiah see? In the year that Isaiah, King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. That word Lord is Adonai. Adonai is a plural, plural word. But anyway... Lifted high and lifted up, and it stood above the seraphims, and one cried and another said, Holy, holy is the Lord Jehovah. That word is Jehovah. For the whole earth is full of his glory. And he said, Go and tell this people, hear ye indeed and understand not, and see ye indeed and perceive not. So here John is saying that Jesus is Jehovah. Very clearly. Now there's a whole study on it that we can go through. I don't have time. Old Testament tells us that. Jehovah is the only true God. We read that. Hold on. The New Testament says that Jesus is God with us. Jehovah is, there is no other God. Jesus is God with us. The Old Testament says Jehovah is our Father. Jesus is the everlasting Father. Jehovah in the Old Testament is the only Saviour. Guess who the only Saviour is in the New Testament? Jehovah is the only rock. Who's Jesus? 
Jehovah is the only creator, we're told in the Old Testament. Who created all things? Jehovah is the first and the last, says the Old Testament. Who is the first and the last? It's Jesus. Jehovah will not share his glory. Isaiah again. Guess who gets to share the Father's glory? Jehovah's not the Father. Jehovah is Almighty God. Jesus is Mighty God. And to Jehovah, every knee shall bow. Isaiah 45, 3, for 23. And to Jesus, every knee shall bow. So here we have this problem. Jesus clearly is Jehovah. But actually, we read before there's only one Jehovah, but actually there's two Jehovahs. Genesis 19, 24. Yeah, this is when Jesus came to speak to Abraham that we read about before. And the Lord, Jehovah, reigned upon Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Where was the Lord, Jehovah? He'd just been talking to Abraham. He was on the earth. And Jehovah on earth rained fire and brimstone from Jehovah in heaven. Two Jehovahs. Zechariah 2, 8 to 10. For thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jehovah, again, every time it says Lord in capital letters, it's Jehovah. Behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants, and ye shall know that the Lord, Jehovah again, has sent me. Which Jehovah sent Jehovah? Lord has sent me. Sing rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. So, there's two Jehovahs. But there's only one Jehovah. We read it before. There's only one Jehovah. I alone am Jehovah. You know, the Bible tells us that a man and a woman can become one. One flesh. Now, when a father or a man marries a woman, you know, they have equal authority and equal power. And they have the same surname. They have the same name. Yet they have different roles. A woman is not inferior to a man. Even while a woman is in subjection to a husband. As Peter tells us, likewise he wife be in subjection to your husband. Now, the example of marriage is not maybe a perfect example, but it shows us that two can be one, even though the two are separate individuals. The problem that we have is that the biblical ideal of marriage is very rarely found on this earth. And so most people have such a distorted understanding of the relationship between a husband and wife that they cannot accept that such a relationship can exist between the members of the Godhead. But the same is true of a child whose parents are arbitrary and abusive and they grow up to think that God is likewise arbitrary and abusive and reject him. So they create some kind of sugar daddy God that's not real. So we have discussed the Father and Jesus. Now, this may be difficult to understand how they're one and yet separate. But, as I said, we're worms. What about the Holy Spirit? Well, very clearly says that there are three that bear record in heaven. And Ellen G. White cites this verse. Now, everybody who believes that Jesus is, God, Holy Spirit doesn't exist, or Jesus is just a little God, okay, they say this verse shouldn't be in the Bible. Well, if this shouldn't be in the Bible, then Ellen G. White is completely wrong about everything she wrote. Now, you know, Proverbs 3 5 says, Every word of God is pure, not just the ones I like. It says, if any man take away words from this prophecy, his name shall be taken away from the book of life. Now, Semiarians claim the Holy Spirit is not a person. But it's just the Spirit of God the Father. 
Now, we are told that God is a spirit, and they that must worship him, worship him in spirit truth. Can a spirit have a spirit? Well, that's a fair question. If the Holy Spirit is only the spirit of God, and God's a spirit, can a spirit have a spirit? Makes no sense to me. Unless you say the Holy Spirit is just God the Father. You see. Which is what they say. This is how they explain it. Well, you know. But of course it gets worse than this. Because in Revelation 3 and 4 and 5, it tells us that God has seven spirits. Not one. He has seven spirits. And he sends them out into the earth. So is the Holy Spirit a member of a team of seven spirits? Or is the Holy Spirit a completely separate from the seven spirits of God. Can you answer that? You know, there's some things that we will not understand until we get to heaven, but it's not a cut and dried, you know, you must believe what I say because I know everything. Now, the Bible makes it very clear. It tells us that the Holy Spirit, it's a person. It's not the Spirit of God. John 16. Okay, expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come. But if I depart, I will send him. Not it. Him unto you. And when He is come, He will reprove. Does some force, does some reprove you of anything? Does it convict you? To like convince you that, you know, one plus one doesn't equal three? You know, does a force do that? No. You know, we can look at the Bible and we can see the Holy Spirit talks and directs. I only know of people that talk. I don't know of sort of forces that talk. Forbids action. Teachers. To, be, to teach, you need to be intelligent. Otherwise, you're not very successful at teaching now, are you? It comforts. It gives prophecies. You've got to know something to give a prophecy. It gives gifts. It has a mind and thinks. You can look up these verses later. He has feelings and loves. You can be tempted. Can I tempt a thing? No. I, can only tempt, I can't even tempt a dog. I can tempt a person. You know, you know, I know you want to be a good dog, but do something evil. Go on, go on. It's nonsense. The Holy Spirit must be a person. can be provoked. can be lied to. Can I lie to a rock? Or some force field? No, of course not. The whole thing's nonsense. And we read that Jehovah is the only true God, but guess what? Acts says that the Holy Spirit is God. And Jehovah is the only creator, but in Genesis 1-2, who's doing the creating? The Holy Spirit moved. And in Job 33, 4, who created, who does Job say created, made it? It's the Holy Spirit. He says it. They're both eternal and both can be blasphemed. So is the Holy Spirit also Jehovah? So what's the issue here? Well, this is probably my favourite verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, the words in Hebrew are Yahweh Elohim is one Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God. That's his name. Okay, he said, remember, we read right up front, my name, but not known me by my name. It's his name. So like, I have a name. It doesn't say what I am. It's just my name. Eloah is the Hebrew word that means God singular. One God. Elohi is plural. It means God's. Just we add S, they add an I. But they have another word, Elohim. That means a collective plural. In other words, a group of individuals. That's what that word means. And it's a singular noun denoting a single group of individuals. 
just like if I talk about carpenters, it's a single group, or plumbers. Right? So the name Jehovah, and there is only one name Jehovah. It's a name that's shared by the members of the Godhead. They are all Jehovah, individually, and as a group. We have the McDonald's family, a group of individuals. They're all McDonald's. Okay, we've got Ma McDonald, Pa McDonald, Kiddo McDonald, and Sissy McDonald, right? Now, if you want to believe the concept that, you know, God is three different personalities in one single living being, you've got a problem here because Genesis 1 says, and God Elohim, God, said, let us make man our own image after our likeness. And the Lord Jehovah God, that's Jehovah Elohim, okay, plural, said, behold, man is become like one of us to know good and evil. And 11, and the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. Go and let us go down. Now, if man is made an image of God, and God is three separate personalities living in one being, right, that means that every single one of us has multiple personalities, sort of. And that is the norm, that is the ideal that God created for us. Now, it's pretty clear to me, either I'm insane or the logic speaks for itself. In conclusion, we've traced the history of the Trinity from its very inception in 325 AD, from its semi-Aryan beginnings as a half-pagan compromise of Emperor Constantine um, that he decreed upon the fledgling Catholic Church when he said that the divine Christ had a beginning when he was begotten of one substance with the Father. And we saw the dogma evolve into the idea that Christ emerged before time began and that Jesus the Father and the Holy Spirit had a single being. And we learned from this that Semiarians, who accused Trinitarians of following Rome, are doing exactly the same thing themselves, just a few centuries behind. We then considered the teachings of the Adventist Church and found that the often repeated claims from both sides that the Church was originally Semiarian is completely untrue. And instead, the Church had no fixed position and many different views were held. We then considered the declarations from the founder, Ellen G. White, and found that she was neither Semiarian nor Trinitarian, but believed the Holy Spirit was just as much a person as Jesus and that Jesus had always existed as a distinct individual from eternity, not derived from the Father in any way whatsoever. Finally, we turned from the Scriptures and found that Jesus is Jehovah, and the Holy Spirit is Jehovah, and there's multiple Jehovahs, because Jehovah is just the name of the Godhead. Um, and each one is God and each one is everlasting. There is not a supreme Father God with little gods running around as Lucifer would have us. And as I said right at the beginning, it's not my intention to tell you how to interpret the Scriptures. It's not my intention to tell you, you know, what is truth and what is not. It's only my intention to give you the facts and tell you what things make no sense to me. So you can decide for yourselves what to believe without being deceived as many are on this question, because so many lies are being told about it on both sides. Now, do you know what I said? Spalding McGann Collection 329, I say and have ever said that I will not engage in controversy with anyone in regard to the nature and personality of God. Those who try to describe God know that on such a subject, silence is eloquence. Let the scriptures be read in simple faith. And let each one form his conceptions of God from his inspired word. Not from what somebody has told you, but from what the scriptures say to you through the avenue of the Holy Spirit. Setting aside all the teachings of men, whatever conception of God you form from the word of God, you are not to enter into dispute about it and never claim that it is a salvation issue. Otherwise, you are establishing papery.
those who claim to be among those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, the matter should be forever settled. 